Welcome to the podcast of Selmore Baptist Church in Ozark, Missouri. To learn more about our church, please visit selmorebaptist.com. And now, here's the sermon. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you to our praise team. Well, we continue to make our way through the book of Hebrews on Sunday mornings, and today we begin the sixth chapter of this great epistle that exalts and glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, fair warning for the message this morning. The passage that we're going to look at today is widely considered by scholars to be one of the most difficult passages of Scripture to interpret in all of the New Testament. But we're going to take a crack at it, and uh, let's pray for the Holy Spirit to help us understand this morning as only he can do. Last week, the writer of Hebrews told his audience that it was time for them to grow up, spiritually speaking. In chapter 5 and verse 12, he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And so last Sunday, we talked about how the goal of the Christian life is to reach a place of maturity where we're able to teach and disciple others. Unfortunately, the Hebrews had not yet reached that place. In fact, they needed someone to teach them the basics. They needed someone to teach them the foundations of the Christian faith all over again. So with that in mind as the background of today's passage, Paul continues with this same line of thought in chapter 6, encouraging the Hebrews to press on to maturity in their faith. And then starting in verse 4, issuing them a solemn warning of what could happen if they do not. In fact, this is one of five such warning passages as they are known in the book of Hebrews. So that kind of gives you a little bit of the lay of the land for this morning's sermon. So let's get started reading and we will begin with the very first part of Hebrews chapter six and verse one. It says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, Let us go on to perfection, and we'll stop right there. All right, let's look at this verse. First of all, the author says we are now leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. That phrase, elementary principles of Christ, corresponds to the phrase, first principles of the oracles of God in chapter 5 and verse 12. In both cases, the writer is referencing the basic tenets of the Christian faith. These are the key doctrines that every Christian should learn early on in our walk with Christ, which serve as a foundation for all that we learn going forward. And the author is actually going to list out some of those doctrines here in a moment. When the writer says that he is leaving these principles in verse 1, he's not saying that he's abandoning them or that they're no longer important. Indeed, we never get to the point of spiritual maturity where we no longer need to be reminded of the basics. Uh, I'm reminded of the story of Vince Lombardi, the famed coach of the Green Bay Packers, calling his men uh, together in the locker room at the beginning of training camp and holding up a football and saying, gentlemen, this is a football. Uh, These are professional football players. They know that. But he was stressing to them the importance of being reminded of the basics. We never get to a place where we don't need those basics, where we don't need those foundations. But here's the author's point. We can't just quit learning and progressing once we master the basics either. Once we have that good spiritual foundation, then we need to build on it with an ever-increasing love for God and an ever-increasing knowledge of his word. 
To use an analogy from last week, we need to progress from spiritual milk to spiritual meat. None of us want to be the 42-year-old or or plug in your own age, still walking around drinking from a baby bottle. This is why the writer exhorts us in verse 1, let us go on to perfection, or many translations say, let us go on to maturity. The idea is not that we'll ever be perfect, we understand that, but we are called to strive for Christian maturity, to reach that point where we can begin to teach and disciple others. Can I just pause here and ask you a question? How are you doing when it comes to progressing in your spiritual maturity? Are you in the word on a consistent basis? Do you spend time in prayer every day? Are you faithful to the church? Are you sharing your faith and inviting others? Are you discipling other Christians younger in the faith than yourself? Do you have a growing faith and a growing relationship with Christ? These are the things that every Christian should be doing. These are the practices that both mature us and demonstrate our maturity in the faith. I want to encourage you this morning, don't be satisfied with where you're at spiritually. Don't be comfortable, but keep learning, keep growing, keep practicing those spiritual disciplines, and keep pressing forward. Now, as the writer of Hebrews challenges his readers to keep growing and continue building on the foundations of the faith, he pauses here for just a minute to make absolutely sure that they know what those foundations are. In the remainder of verse 1 and then verse 2, the author lists six key foundations of the Christian faith. And I think it's fair to say that this is not intended to be an all-inclusive list, but these are six very important things that every Christian should know and understand and have settled in their own heart and mind. As an aside, before we go through this list, I do just want to point out there are different interpretations among scholars as to what a couple of these things are referring to. So do be aware of that, but uh, I'll be glad to give you my humble and correct understanding. All right. Some of you caught that. All right, let's begin by reading through this list and we'll talk about it. Second part of verse one, And then verse 2. It says, Not laying again the foundation of, and, and really I think we could put a colon there after of, because here's where the list starts. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. We'll pause there. All right, as we said, the list through which we just read comprises foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. And we'll go through these in a moment. But first, note what the author says in verse one when he says, we are not to lay again this foundation. The key word is again. When you pour a foundation for a building, you don't pour it over and over. That would be silly and expensive. You pour the foundation once, you get it right, hopefully, and then you move on with the project You start building on that foundation. And it's the same way with this. The writer is saying, let's get these doctrinal foundations settled once and for all and then move on. Go forward and build on them with other things that the Lord wants to show us and teach us. If we never move past the foundation, we'll never be all that God intends us to be. And we'll never walk with him as closely as we otherwise could. And we don't want that. We don't want to miss what God has for us. So let's get this foundation settled. Let's be sure that we have it correct. 
What are some of the key doctrines that should comprise then that foundation? Well, the author lists six, which really can be broken down further into three couplets or three pairs. So let's look at them in that way, and we'll do this fairly briefly. But couplet number one would be repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Both repentance and faith are essential components of salvation. In fact, they are two sides of the same co- excuse me, the same coin. We repent of or turn from our sin and simultaneously we turn toward Jesus and we follow him in belief and faith. Now, it's interesting when you read the Gospels because sometimes the writers emphasize repentance really strongly in salvation, and other times they emphasize belief. It kind of depends on which writer you're reading and and what the context is. But the point is, it takes both of those to become a Christian, and they go hand in hand together, repentance and faith, repentance and belief. So we have to have that settled. Now, couplet number two, of foundational doctrines that we see listed here would be baptism and the laying on of hands. We see that in verse 2. Now, first, let me say that there's very likely some Old Testament imagery being employed here by the writer. Uh, The word baptisms in verse 2 isn't the typical word used for baptism as we know it in the New Testament. Really, this word could be translated as washings. And this could refer to the ceremonial washings that were commanded by the Old Testament law. Similarly, the laying on of hands mentioned in verse 2 could refer to the practice of a person in the Old Testament bringing an animal sacrifice, laying their hands on that animal as a symbol of their sin being transferred to that animal. In like fashion, uh, the high priest would lay his hands on the scapegoat. Some of you are familiar with that practice in the Old Testament. It's very possible, in fact, I don't think there's any doubt that the author is using some of that Old Testament imagery in this verse. However, we also recognize that those Old Testament practices were merely foreshadowing what was to come in the New Testament. And so for us as New Testament Christians, our washing is indeed symbolized by baptism. Every New Testament believer is called to publicly profess faith in Christ through immersion in water. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, the very first step of obedience is water baptism. If you love Jesus and you've not been baptized, you need to take care of that pronto. You need to follow him in obedience. And I would encourage you, talk to me about that and we would be happy to baptize you. Regarding the laying on of hands mentioned in verse 2, as you might imagine, this has any number of interpretations and suggested applications for us as New Testament Christians. And we don't have time to explore all of those, but to me, in very simple terms, the laying on of hands symbolizes being spirit-filled and sent out. For instance, I think about the very first missionaries in the New Testament, Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13, and the church that they were part of, the church at Antioch, was praying and fasting. And while they were praying and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to them, separate to me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work that I have for them. And it says that the church laid hands on them and sent them out. Now, here's the bottom line and and the key doctrine that every Christian should know. We're not saved to sit. We are saved to serve. 
Baptism is not the end of our journey. It's only the beginning. Once we've been baptized, we have been commissioned by Jesus to go and make disciples of the nations. Every Christian must know and understand, once I am baptized, I have a duty to fulfill. I am commissioned by Christ and empowered by his spirit to be his witness, beginning in my own city and extending to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so those two things, water baptism and the Holy Spirit empowering us to be Jesus's witness, symbolized in this text by the laying on of hands, are absolute foundations of the Christian faith. Couplet number three that we see in verse two. These are foundations of our faith. Couplet number three would be the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Every Christian must know and understand that there will be a resurrection of the dead on the last day. Now, when we take our last breath in this life, our spirit goes immediately to heaven or hell, depending on whether or not we have put our faith in Jesus. But on the last day, the Bible teaches that our body will be resurrected and reunited with our spirit. Of that day, 1 Thessalonians 4 says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And then he says, comfort one another with these words. First Corinthians 15 speaks of that day as well, saying that our bodies will be changed in an instant in the twinkling of an eye. I used to have a pastor when I was a kid who would say, uh, a, a twinkling's not a blink. A blink's really quick. A twinkling's just that little spark. It's even faster. We're gonna be changed really quick. We'll be given new, glorified, incorruptible bodies to enjoy a new heaven and a new earth forever and ever. In contrast, those who died without Christ, the Bible says, will awake to everlasting shame and contempt. Be assured of this, the resurrection is coming. It will happen. And once it does, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ as his people, and we will give an account of our life. Now, Christians love to discuss and debate the timing and sequence of these events that will happen at the end of time, and that's perfectly fine so long as we do that in a spirit of love. But the foundational truths that we must know and agree upon are that one day there will be a resurrection and Christ will judge the living and the dead. Now, all of these six things that we've discussed, those six things that you see on the screen there, those are foundations of the Christian faith. Now, some of you may be relatively young in the faith, and you're thinking, man, I'm not sure that I totally understand these. And that's okay. It's a process. We're all learning. We're all growing together. If you have a question about any of these things, find a Christian who's a little further along than you and ask them to help you. Or you can ask me as well. But the point is, we need to reach a place where we have our foundation settled so that we can build on that foundation and keep pressing forward to maturity. All right, we're going to switch gears a little bit now. Because the writer of Hebrews in verses 4 through 6 offers a very solemn warning to his readers. And the warning goes something like this. I'm, I'm summarizing, I'm paraphrasing, okay? There will be those in the church who give every outward indication 
of being a follower of Jesus Christ who not only don't mature in the faith, but actually end up walking away from the faith. For such ones, the writer says, God closes the door to them ever returning. As I said in the beginning, these verses we're about to read are some of the most difficult verses to hear and some of the most difficult verses to understand in all the New Testament. So we want to be very careful in how we approach them. And I would invite you to pray even now in your heart that the Holy Spirit would give us understanding. Let's read verses 4 through 6 in chapter 6, and then we'll begin to talk about it. He says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. All right, let's talk about these verses. There are four main views of interpreting this text, and I want to lay them out for you very quickly and then tell you which one I believe is closest to being correct. First, there are those who believe that this text teaches that a genuinely saved person can lose their salvation. It says such ones have been enlightened, they've tasted of the heavenly gift, they've become partakers of the Holy Spirit, etc. Yet in verse 6, they fall away. You can see why someone would come to the conclusion that this is a saved person who has fallen from grace. However, one thing that we know is that we cannot take any one passage of Scripture and read it in a vacuum. It must always be understood in the light of all of Scripture. One very important principle is that Scripture interprets Scripture. And we know that the Bible never contradicts itself. And so when taking all of Scripture into consideration, it is clear that a genuinely saved person cannot lose their salvation. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, No one can snatch his sheep from his hand. Romans 8 says, Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Philippians 1 says, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. 2 Timothy 1, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. 1 Peter 1, 5 says, We are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. So based on the whole of Scripture, it is our contention, this could not possibly mean in Hebrews chapter 6, a genuinely saved person can lose their salvation. For that would contradict what the Bible clearly teaches multiple places elsewhere. I might also note one who does subscribe to this approach would also then have to admit that a saved person who lost their salvation could never be saved again. As this text says, it would be impossible for them to ever again be renewed to repentance. Well, what's the second view related to this passage? Well, some would say this is not about a Christian losing their salvation, but rather it's about a Christian losing the full blessing of their salvation. Or we might say losing much of their heavenly reward. In this scenario, such ones make it to heaven, but only by the skin of their teeth. Some scholars hold to this view, respected scholars. I must be honest, I don't see it in the text. I think it's a bit of wishful thinking, that's just me. But I wanted you to know that that view is out there as well. Third, some would say what's being presented here is strictly a hypothetical scenario. 
they would say that the writer's laying out a theoretical case that if it were possible for a genuinely saved Christian to fall away from the faith, then certainly they could never be saved again because it would be equivalent to crucifying Christ a second time. According to this view, the, the point of this hypothetical argument is to show the absurdity of such a scenario ever actually taking place. Biblically speaking, this approach is more consistent with the entire teaching of Scripture, but it too has a couple of problems. First, the word if at the beginning of verse 6 in the King James and New King James, when it says if they fall away, is not the most accurate translation of the Greek. In fact, many English translations do not include the word if at the beginning of verse 6 for this very reason. Obviously, if you remove the word if from the passage, it pretty much takes the hypothetical approach completely off the table. Second, by relegating this to a strictly hypothetical scenario, it really removes the teeth and it removes the seriousness of the warning that the author is trying to convey to his readers. If this is only a hypothetical, what's the point of saying it in the first place? If there's nothing the Hebrews actually need to be concerned about related to their salvation, then why even bring it up? Well, that's where the fourth view comes in, the one that I personally believe is most consistent with the text. The fourth view of this passage is that it is describing a person who has never genuinely been saved. They are unconverted. Now, they, they very likely made a profession of faith at some point. They were baptized. They served in the church. They gave every outward indication that they truly belonged to Jesus. But then one day, they walked away. They stopped coming to church. They even disavowed their previous faith in Jesus Christ. In short, they became apostate. For such a one, the writer of Hebrews says, it is impossible for a person who falls away in this regard ever to be renewed again to repentance. Why? Because even after knowing the truth of what Jesus did for them on the cross, and even after experiencing firsthand the love and fellowship of the church, they still rejected Jesus. Even though their minds were enlightened to the truth of the gospel, they still rejected Christ. Even though they had a little taste of that heavenly gift, they still rejected Christ. Even though they be became partakers of the Holy Spirit, not having, them, not having him in their heart, but, but benefiting from the presence of him in the body of Christ and, and benefiting from the gifts that he gives to the body of Christ, they still rejected Christ. Even though they tasted the word of God, hearing it preached and taught week after week, they still rejected Christ. Even though they experienced firsthand the power of the age to come, that is the power of God, they still rejected Christ. In essence, verse six says, by their rejection, they crucify for themselves the son of God a second time. In essence, they stand with Jesus' enemies in putting him to an open shame. This level of rejection, according to the writer of Hebrews, is unforgivable. It is one thing to reject Christ out of ignorance because you don't know better. It's a whole other thing to know all about Christ 
and to witness his power and to experience the love of his people and the presence of his spirit and still turn your back and walk away. In fact, I think that you can make a good argument that this constitutes blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus said is the unpardonable sin. If this is indeed what the Spirit is saying through the writer of Hebrews, this is a grave warning to us all, all of us who claim to be followers of Christ. The warning is not that we can lose our salvation, for we know that those who have been genuinely saved will persevere. They will never fall away. But the warning to us is that we must validate our salvation and verify it to ourselves and to others by persevering in the faith. Now hear me because I want to say this in the strongest terms. Professing Christian, if you disavow Jesus, if you walk away forever from the church, you are proving that you never belong to God in the first place. And you may very well be sealing your eternal fate in the fires of hell. And those are strong words, but I believe with all of my heart, that's what the Holy Spirit is saying to us this morning through this text. And I would just say to you, if you're here today and you're thinking about giving up on the whole Christianity thing, and maybe you haven't told another soul that, maybe you haven't even fully admitted it to yourself, but you're thinking about just giving up on it and just walking away, I would beg with you. I would plead with you not to do that. Please talk to another mature Christian in your life. Tell them that you're struggling. Tell us that you're struggling. We'll listen to you. We'll love you. We'll pray for you. And we'll try our best to help you. I want to say this as well. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to have doubts. Faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is believing in spite of our doubts. If we're doubting something, that is evidence, it's proof that we're wrestling with it, that we're struggling with it. And that's a good thing because ultimately it's going to lead us to the truth. So if you have questions, if you have doubts, don't feel like you have to hide those. God is full of grace. He's full of mercy. But please don't walk away from Jesus. Don't crucify him again. Don't put the grace and long-suffering of God to the test. Please do not do that. Let's finish up now with our last two verses, verses 7 and 8. It says, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. The writer of Hebrews uses an agricultural analogy to bring this section of the letter to a close. And I'll just sum it up very quickly. As the earth drinks in the rain that God provides, and it produces herbs, or we might say fruit, so is the person who drinks in the gospel of Jesus Christ and produces spiritual fruit, It says this person will receive blessings from God. But the person who rejects the rain that God provides, the person who rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ will not produce fruit 
but rather thorns and briars. And he will be rejected by God and cursed and ultimately, it says, burned up. Now those are hard words. But at the same time, they are actually words of grace. And they're words of mercy and love if we heed their warning. And if we save our soul from destruction. Dear Christian, stay faithful to Christ. Press on to maturity. Persevere in the faith. And if you don't know Christ, if you've been putting on a false front for others in the church and maybe even for yourself, repent of your sin and believe on Jesus today and he will save you and he will welcome you with open arms. It is never, ever too late. This has been a very heavy sermon today. It's weighed heavy on my heart. And I appreciate you being here and listening and I know that God will bless you for that. But if you're here today and you need to respond to this message in any way, we do want to give you an opportunity to do that. In just a moment, we're gonna have a song of response. And as we sing, I'm gonna be standing here on the floor at the front of the room. And if you're ready to become a follower of Jesus, we would invite you to come forward during the song. Just walk to me and say, Josh, I'm ready. I'm all in. I'm ready to follow Jesus. And I'd be more than happy to lead you in a, a prayer of commitment of your life. And you can get that settled right here and right now. If you have any other public decision you would like to make, including baptism or requesting membership in our church, you can come during this song and you can let me know that as well. And of course, this is a time to pray about anything that's on your heart. The altars are open if you would like to come on bended knee and humble yourself before God in prayer. I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask the musicians, if they would, to come up after I pray. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you so much. For this passage, it's a difficult passage, it is difficult words. Lord, I trust that in your providence there is a reason that we read and studied this text today. Lord, I believe that this message is for all of us, Lord, but it may be even more so specifically for certain individuals in this room. Lord, if that's the case, I pray that they would surrender fully to you. If they are not saved, I pray, Lord that they would come today and put their faith in you. And Lord, if there's any Christian in this room who is wavering, who is struggling, who is drowning, dear God, show them that you are there for them and give them the faith and the strength they need to persevere. We commit this time unto you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.